0: AM 1600 KIVA 93.7 FM, the web, the app, rockoftalk.com. I'm Eddie Uragon, the rock of talk with me, Stephen Helgerson. This is Project Pushback for us. Saturday afternoon. Glad to be here with my good friend, and he's the guy who pushes out all those emails every day that gives you the nice reading list from projectpushback.com. Author of the 11th hour, if you want to push back against those pesky Democrats, he's here each and every Saturday afternoon. Stephen Helgerson, good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you, Eddie. Welcome, everyone, to another Project Pushback Corner Half Hour. I'm your host, Stefan Helgeson, and I'm the author of the book, The Eleventh Hour, How You Can Push Back the Liberal Left. It's my third book on conservatism and the Republican Party that was published just this year. Long before I wrote this book, I worked as a U.S. diplomat for 20 years in about 30 different countries. I saw four presidents come and go in those years, and watched the country go from Republican to Democrat, from Reagan to Bush, then from Bush to Clinton, and then back again to Bush the Younger. I knew that after 20 years it was time to hang up my spurs, so I retired to New Mexico in 2004, thinking that I would kick back and enjoy doing nothing. Well, that didn't last long, and I was asked to manage a Republican's campaign for governor. Unfortunately, it ended shortly after it began, but that gave me a taste of New Mexico politics. Later, I accepted a position in the Richardson administration as the director of the Office of Science and Technology, and that lasted for about four years. It probably would have lasted longer, but the governor discovered that I was not a card-carrying Democrat, and he eliminated my position. For the last 10 years, I've been working hard to get conservatives elected to public office. I managed the Republican candidates campaign for lieutenant governor and helped out as an advisor on another, all the while writing articles for the newspapers and doing the occasional radio interview. But last year, I felt like I needed to be doing more. So I set up a political action forum and a website called Project Pushback. Project Pushback's aim is to make people aware of what's really going on in our country's politics and to encourage them to push back at the liberal left's talking points. It's not easy in a state where 45% of the registered voters are Democrats and only 30% are Republicans, but we can't give up, especially this year. Every morning before the birds and my six cats have their breakfast, I research a number of conservative websites like The American Conservative, Breitbart, The Daily Caller, Town Hall, and others, and I pick out articles that I think will interest my readers. I bundle them together in an email with links to those stories and send that email out free of charge. If you'd like to be put on the mailing list to receive it, go to my website www.projectpushback.com and send me your contact information. That's all there's to it. Your information's safe with me, and I don't sell it or share it with anyone. If you'd like to cancel at any time, just let me know and I'll remove your name from the list. No hard feelings whatsoever. All right, let's get down to this week's business. Today I'm going to talk about two diametrically opposed subjects, the coronavirus and humor. But strange as it may seem, they do have something in common. Let's start with how we're managing our social withdrawal. I remember when I had the measles and the mumps, and I'll bet you do too. Apart from the discomfort, what glorious times those were to be liberated from school and to be pampered with breakfast and lunch in bed and to lie around reading up on the latest exploits of Superman and the Green Hornet. Big little books and comics were my comfort food as I gradually regained my health. I confessed to a little malingering, wanting to draw out the time I could be sidelined from the Catholic nun's taskings. Eventually, I had to fess up, and when asked, How are you feeling today, my son? I could no longer feign a near death condition. Gone were the telltale spots and fever. I was given my papers and told to rejoin the ranks of the living and resume my studies. I was happy to see my classmates again, and I remember thinking that life wasn't so bad after all. There was always recess to look forward to. As a matter of fact, that's one of the secrets of survival, having something to look forward to. And while I don't know, didn't know it then, I sure do now, after being forced to self-exile due to the coronavirus. I suspect you're feeling the same as you go about your daily routines. This much solitude can do strange things to a person, though. As I sit with my cornflakes in front of the television most mornings, I find myself looking out both hemispheres of my bifocals at the same time. I hear what the president and vice president and their band of scientists and administrators on the corona task force are saying. And I was even able to listen to what New York's Governor Cuomo was saying when he was giving his daily briefings, for at least 10 minutes before my ears started shutting down and my eyes started glazing over. He was certainly no Fiorello LaGuardia reading the Sunday comics to kids over the wireless. Those of you in your eighth decade will know who I'm talking about. Unfortunately my mind started wandering after a while and I was drawn to the sign language person behind the podium or in that little picture on the screen who is wildly gesturing and grimacing simultaneously, as if the words are controlling them and not the other way around. I'm hooked. I tune out Cuomo and concentrate on the signing person. What a treat. While I can't quite understand anything that's being said with hands, I'm locked in a state of utter fascination at their energy and their comedic grimaces. Then I remember back to the year 2013, when a phony sign language person stepped up and interpreted Barack Obama's eulogy of Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg, South Africa. Then there was the fake signer that spoke in gibberish in a Tampa, Florida police press conference in 2017. A mind is a strange thing indeed, and mind was work, mine, my mind was working in overtime. So I came up with a new game to amuse myself. I would turn off the sound on the TV and only watch the pictures for a whole day. Turned out, this was very entertaining. One of my favorite things quickly became viewing all the inane commercials that populate the Fox News Channel and trying to analyze the body language of the spokespeople. This was a snap because Fox runs these commercials ad nauseum in an almost endless loop, so if I missed something I could be sure of seeing it again within the hour. The biggies are all the pharmaceutical companies that hawk products offering to cure everything from erectile dysfunction to hair loss, and everything in between those two points. One of my favorites for a while was the My Pillow guy, Mike Lindell, a born pitchman Lindell holds his pillow as if he was cradling a newborn baby and caresses it as if it was an injured puppy hit by a driverless car, all the while smiling his ultra sincere salesman smile and being sure to let the crucifix around his neck drop into camera view over his silky blue shirt. Sitting on his My Pillow mattress topper, his hands chop up and down for emphasis. I don't know what words this action would be interpreted in sign language, but it certainly is energized. I am mesmerized. His passion for his pillows and other assorted sleep products is as infectious as the COVID-19. Then the camera shifts to the figure of a lady lying on her side with her back towards the camera. I don't mind saying this is my favorite part. Hers is a perfect hourglass figure in repose. So perfect, in fact, that I'm reaching for my credit card. Fortunately for me, before I could dial the phone, Lindell's back, chopping away with his hands, walking backwards, and motioning to his factory of busy worker bees, telling everybody that his products are proudly made in the USA. Then it's over, except for the TV promotional code and another shot of Happy Mike. Well... Trying to recover, I unmute the TV only to see William Devane step out from underneath either a battleship's guns or a 200-year-old oak tree. He tells me that America will soon choose a new leader, either a Republican, Democrat, or Independent, and that he is going to do his part. He will vote and then buy gold to basically hedge against whichever idiot is elected, I'm guessing. Yes, sir, Devane is a true American. Patriotic and skeptical. And more than a smidgen paranoid, too. But aren't we all these days? Especially those of us who've seen how our leaders in Washington are acting as they now debate whether to give unemployed workers $600 or $200 a week and bail out financially strapped blue states. At this point, I'm sorely tempted to let the Democrats have it right between the eyes as they dither and dally and insist on adding non-essential funding to the next essential corona relief bill. While I'm all for supporting our brave healthcare workers, I really don't think the carve-outs they've suggested to bolster votes from teachers unions and others are going to help the country as a whole or keep America's wage earners' heads above the waterline. What they need to do is lean on our power-crazed governors and push them to start reopening their so-called non-essential businesses. And that way we won't need to pay people to stay home. Oh well, but that's just me and that's my logic. If we all remain in our forced seclusion in our haciendas for much longer, I'm afraid that there is a real and present danger. And that danger is that we might actually wake up and get angry enough to throw every elected state official out of office in November. There is a solution, however, and that is to write in the My Pillow guy's name on the ballot for every single office. Goodness knows we could do a whole heck of a lot worse. More on the COVID-19 crisis. Changing America's habits. The pandemic has shocked us more than any tornado, any hurricane, any flood, or any forest fire. It's put the fear of God into even those who don't believe in him. It's turned believers into super-believers and every one of us into shadows of our former selves. It's also going to be a force for profound change in the way we interact with one another going forward and how we look at our lives and of those lives around us. On a macro level, the coronavirus will inevitably change the way we plan for such crises and will radically alter our health care delivery system. It will also precipitate the establishment of rainy day funds to deal with such emergencies. This goes for our states as well as the federal government. It will profoundly affect our international relationships, principally with China, but also with certain international organizations like the World Health Organization, with whom we've already split the sheets. American companies will be more acutely aware of the problems associated with manufacturing their products overseas, especially in China. Hear that, Apple, and the hundreds of smaller companies who've had manufacturing contracts with the People's Republic over the years? Our Commerce Department and U.S. Trade Representatives offices, along with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and America's labor unions, we'll need to fashion new strategies to deal with the loss of jobs due to the crisis, as well as develop new ways to secure our independence from foreign control. Hopefully, our Congress and Senate will realize that they are playing a dangerous game of legislative chicken that values tactics like partisan steamrollering or stonewalling instead of confronting our most pressing issues head-on before it's too late. We must never ever reward those elected representatives who choose to ignore such challenges and issues with reelection. Never. Our memories must be longer than the next day's newscast. On a state and community level, we citizens must not let our governors and mayors abuse our constitutional rights and grab more executive power due to their perceived need to protect us from ourselves. Well, I don't know about you, but I am profoundly sick of being treated like a child by our governor, no matter how good her intentions may be. And the city of Albuquerque? Don't get me started, as Billy Crystal used to say. Tell me why it's okay to protest on the streets with no social distancing, and in large numbers, defying the governor's no more than five rule, but not allow citizens to go to church. One of my smarter friends said that if it weren't for this double standard, there would be no standard at all here. If necessary, we must amend our state constitutions or enact laws that will protect the individual's right to speak out honestly and to gather. And interact responsibly. This had better be done immediately after the crisis has passed. If we don't do anything, I'm afraid we'll settle back into our old ways and move on to other things. It's just human nature. Businesses too must weigh in individually and as a group like the Restaurant Owners Association has done and push for a business bill of rights that guarantees their ability to pursue reasonable commercial operations during a crisis. Church leaders should cross religious boundary lines and form a coalition that will demand their collective rights to safely and responsibly conduct church services for their congregants and parishioners and push back against attempts to limit any future attempts to cripple them by the executive in Santa Fe or in any municipality. One of the principal takeaways from the coronavirus crisis is that a power vacuum is never left unfilled for long. Someone will always move to take advantage of. Ideally, it should be we the people, but this crisis has seen the chief executives of states do so in an unprecedented fashion. Some governors, have been careful to avoid overreaching and unduly disadvantaging their citizenry and businesses. But many have gone in a totally opposite direction, like ours, for example. Michigan's loopy governor has even banned private gatherings of family members. Well, this is a classic, classic example of power grabbing and must not be tolerated or condoned post-crisis. It's probably a fair statement to make that most governors and mayors aren't economists, nor do they fully understand how businesses work, let alone work best. So it's not unfair to require them to consult with those businesses that operate within their borders before they impose draconian measures to cut their legs out from underneath them. This goes for city councils, too. It's imperative that we all remember that governments are the servants of the people and not the other way around. By focusing on that simple fact, we should be able to develop appropriate strategies for handling future crises in a more cooperative and productive manner. On an individual level, we will hopefully have learned some very important lessons from this crisis, the most important of which is that we all need each other. We will also have learned to forego certain customs to keep ourselves safe, like keeping a reasonable distance from one another when conversing, covering our mouths when we feel a sneeze or cough coming on, and respecting the health of others by staying home when we're sick. Then there's our larder. We must stock up and have at least a few months' worth of canned goods and non-perishable food and other items on hand. This includes cleaning products, medication, and yes, toilet paper too. Americans must learn to become more self-sufficient and grow their own vegetables whenever and wherever possible. We must kick-start our inner-city community garden programs in cooperation with nonprofits, co-ops, and with municipal governments. It's necessary for our suburban and ex-urban neighborhoods to get to know each other and stay in regular contact with one another through communications networks like two-way radios and cascade warning systems like we use to protect us from burglars. This could also include setting up a neighborhood storehouse of supplies that participants could draw on in an emergency. The elderly need to feel part of this effort as well. As the virus has shown, they, we, are the ones at greatest risk. So it's no question that they must be given more assistance or regarded as high priority, read, vulnerable members of any community. Seniors, whether in urban or suburban environments, must pressure their governments to enact action plans that take their special needs for safety into account we've seen that schooling our children is indeed possible through electronic means and this should be a wake-up call to school districts and parents that comprise them that we must develop new affordable remote learning opportunities as alternatives or supplements to our children's education this does not mean that we should advocate for the destruction of the present live human-based teaching environment. But now that we've seen that distance learning is possible, it should be implemented with qualified teachers staffing the service. At present, nearly 20 million Americans are unemployed. This equates to a more than 11% unemployment rate. Will all of these people be rehired post-coronavirus? I doubt it. We must therefore examine carefully the lessons we've learned from this crisis and see how we can develop some best practices that can address what emergency procedures are necessary to safeguard not only the health and well-being of our citizens, but also protect our very vulnerable economy and jobs simultaneously. Each crisis demands real-time management, but each one also deserves a thorough investigative, nonpartisan search for our vulnerabilities, absent of political finger-pointing. And by the way, If I hear one more idiot progressive claim that President Trump has failed to protect America during this pandemic, I'm going to go berserk. This crisis is one of near biblical proportions and is akin to the Spanish flu from 1918 to 1920, and not even the saintly Barack Obama had an action plan in his drawer for something like this. If we ignore the lessons learned from the coronavirus because we feel that the truth might be too painful to handle we will compound the severity of the next crisis. The only thing we'd achieve by rejecting that exercise and sticking our collective head in the sand is, well, a head full of sand. I have no hard statistics or hard data to support this thesis, but I'm going to lay it on you anyway. America has lost its sense of humor, and especially its ability to produce that deft version that appeals to the thinking man or woman's preference a little tongue and cheekiness Brother, do I long for the days when Art Buchwald was writing his columns on politics and Andy Rooney was tweet- treating us to another round of Did You Ever Wonder That? on 60 Minutes. The ladies were there, too, with humorists like Irma Bombeck, who really knew how to turn a phrase. Intellectual humor or satire was what some people called it, but I just called it hilarious in an understated way that made you stop for a second and think. Chuckles and chortles were the result, and there were plenty for me. Two years ago, we lost Charles Krauthammer, another literary giant who was, in my opinion, on a par with Mark Twain and Will Rogers. That reminds me, we should also not forget the ultimate late-night show host, Jack Parr. Notice that none of these people resorted to blue words or scatological commentary to make us laugh. They appealed to our better angels and better upbringing and didn't need to grovel in the mud and wallow in shock talk and four-letter expletives to tap into our funny bones. Their routines and written words reminded us that we had a beautiful language, and they have an obligation to use it to stimulate our minds. No more resorting to knuckle-dragging comedy riffs that require us to pretend that we were all vulgarians at heart, and that the only real laughs were those that came from jokes made about our bodies and drugs, or that ridiculed people different from ourselves. I know this sounds priggish and old-fashioned, but I was always taught that people who peppered their speech with gutter talk just didn't have a big vocabulary, and couldn't adequately describe their feelings or opinions. Comedians of the 40s and 50s, the period that I can best relate, did sometimes make their mark and their careers with folksy or ethnic humor like Moms Mabley, but much of it was self-effacing, and not targeted at another ethnic or racial group. No one called moms a racist. There were exceptions to the blue rule, of course, like the ultimate bad boy, Lenny Bruce. And there was Jackie Leonard and Don Rickles who exemplified the insult comics that didn't ask you to suspend reality, but instead gave it to you right in the labanza. Mort Sahl, who is still around at 92, was best was one of those best comics, so-called cerebral comedians, whose routine seemed off-the-cuff and relaxed, and never violated the audience's trust. Times changed when the free-love anti-war generation wanted a one-way ticket away from their parents' comedy. They wanted something real, man, something earthy, that was above all rebellious. Enter Richard Pryor and George Carlin, followed by Eddie Murphy, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock, and so on. It seemed that none of them could put together a simple sentence without assaulting our ears, with expletive upon expletive, often in rapid succession. Definitely not mainstream America's cup of tea. Granted, there were a few comics, there are a few comics today, who only use an occasional F-word to underscore their points, or to connect with a younger audience, but they are unfortunately the exception, not the rule. Anger comedy has taken over female comedians' routines. You need only listen to a few minutes of Janine Garofalo, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes, or Kathy Griffin to realize that fact. I ask myself continually, when did we become comedy bottom feeders anyway? I suspect that television and entertainment historians will probably tell us that everything changed when HBO and cable came on the scene not to mention Netflix. The floodgates were open, and comedians and everyone else could say just about everything they wanted to. And boy, they did. Yes, I'm sorry we ended up on this path, because by following it, we've ended up in the tar pit of bad taste and are stuck in place. Br'er Fox has won over Br'er Rabbit. And if Uncle Remus could talk today, he'd probably say, just because you can say anything you want, don't mean you should. We've got to put a cap on our free speech sometime and some ways. I don't mean to say that we should self-censor to the point of being boring or lying, but we need to watch what we say to each other. Words matter. Words also hurt, and they can hurt deeply. Think of all the insults that are thrown about on the airwaves today and all the names that are being called back and forth, like racists, pigs, you name it. America's got to get a hold on itself and get a hold of its passions and its virtue. Well, that's about all the time we have for today, but I want to leave you with some words of encouragement. Folks, remember, your voice counts. Your opinion matters, and your vote is essential. You must stand up for what you believe in and not allow yourself to be bullied by the left. Don't let them set the agenda or push you into a corner or marginalize you. The upcoming election is a referendum on our values and you need to register to vote and be sure to get out there and vote in November. As I said earlier, if you'd like to be put on my mailing list to get an early morning email with a dozen political stories of interest, just go to my website www.projectpushback.com and send me your contact information. Remember that you have the power to change thoughts, ideas, and actions. And while those may only be your own thoughts, ideas, and actions to begin with, that's a good start. Be sure to tune in at the same time next week for the Project Pushback Half Hour. And remember to keep your dial firmly fixed on KIVA AM 1600 for the absolute best in conservative talk radio. Thanks for listening, and so long for now.